Welcome to Nipped and Talks. This is Dr. Ashley Roby, and with me... I'm back! <laughs> hey, Ashley, uh, quadruple board certified plastic surgeon. We should probably mention that as well. Yeah. You know, because I haven't been here in a while. And, uh, you know, I'm a CPCP, and we have a special guest. Yes. Super exciting. Dr. Chris Crawford. Yes. Hello. Dr. Crawford, you know, on every episode I talk about my certifications, it's getting a bit tiresome, but I think people would love to hear about your background. Sure. I am a board-certified general surgeon, and I did specialty training in minimally invasive advanced laparoscopic surgery with a certificate in bariatric surgery, and that is the majority of what I do now, about uh, 80% of the surgery that I do is either bariatric surgery or surgery on patients who've had bariatric surgery. So yes, we're talking today about bariatric surgery and post-bariatric contouring. So a little bit of both because after you've seen the patients and you've gotten them to their ideal weight, that's my jam, but I feel like it's important to get patients to that weight. So here we are, and we're going to talk a little bit about both today. So I have a question to start us off. What BMI is someone that they say, hey, bariatric surgery is something that I need to do or consider? So a BMI of 35 to 40 would start to qualify somebody for bariatric okay. surgery. So That's for pe- lower than I thought. It, it is surprising to a lot of people. A lot of people see shows like My 600-Pound Life and think that that's kind of your typical patient, but we like to get to people before they ever get to that point. Uh, those people would definitely benefit from having surgery. But it's better to get to somebody before they develop a lot of the problems that they would have from getting their weight that high. So BMI is body mass index, which is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared, just in case people want to. Right. And so maybe we should go over what's a healthy BMI. Shipper is something around 18 and a half to 25. And then 25 to 30 is overweight. Over 30 is obese. There are some other categories was it over 35 is morbidly obese and they're super morbidly mm-hmm. obese. And they, they used to use those adjectives a lot more. Now we mostly just kind of look at the numbers and, and go off of that. But yes, that's that's how they've done like class one, two, and three obesity. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I just look at the actual BMI number. I don't necessarily break it down that way. So for those of our listeners that don't know exactly what is bariatric surgery? Yes. So bariatric surgery, bari means weight. It refers to weight loss surgery, and our national society is the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, so it's not just about the weight, it's about the metabolic impact that these operations have too, so that's the metabolic part. So any gastrointestinal type procedure that would be done in order to decrease somebody's weight for weight loss and for the metabolic benefits. So is this where you take out a portion of the intestines? So actually none of the procedures involve removing any intestine. Or part Um, of the stomach? Yes, yes. So we can go through the different procedures. Yeah, I did want to talk about all the options, but I wanted to start at the very beginning from that perspective. So wiring your mouth shut. That's something that people I know someone that did that, not for that reason, but she lost a lot of weight. Why did she do it? She broke her jaw jaw somehow. That's that's like a legit reason. (laughs) Hey, but it was it was actually really effective as far as weight loss. Yeah, so some people will still do it for diet control. Um, no, you don't do that. No, no. I was so, going to say, that so, would be a dentist, right? So oh, probably an oral surgeon. Or but, a dentist. So okay. what, what we've found is that, and most people have probably realized this on their own, any kind of diet only works for as long as you're doing it. Right. So if you are starting something, it's going to need to last basically the rest of your life if you want it to work. If you're relying on something like wiring your jaw shut, I don't think that's something you want to do for the rest of your life. Right. I think not. So 
probably just a temporary maneuver. And in a case like your friend, you know, her body was also healing from trauma and injury mm-hmm. or whatever else it was. And that causes weight loss, too, is when okay. your body is going through a, a stressful situation, you'll you'll lose weight. You know, if somebody has an emergency surgery, they often lose a lot of weight. But that's temporary. They tend to regain it. Right. right. And that's true for all the fat diets. If you're subsisting on paprika and lemon juice, <laughs> then... Awful diet. Then, it, you know, and you lose 10 <laughs> pounds, right? Then great, cool, but you're not going to maintain that. So it's not going to work long term. Hence, they say the lifestyle change. Right. Lifestyle change over diet. So wiring the mouth shut, yeah, I'm sure temporarily works, but not a great long term solution. How about the Orbera? Is that something, Dr. Crawford, that you do? We did to? offer it for a little while at our program. So I work at the St. Vincent Carmel Hospital. And uh, in the past, that was offered. So that's uh, the intragastric balloon. Yes. So you would do an endoscopy, camera down the mouth under some sedation anesthesia, and you insert the deflated balloon, and then you inflate it, and it's left in there for uh, three to six months, and it basically just fills up part of your stomach. In the stomach? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. In the stomach. And it's too big to pass into the intestines. So you just have this earlier sense of satiety, and that's... So you'll feel full or kind of nauseated was sort of what it was. But again, it it circles back to most of these things only work for as long as it's in there or so being done to So you remove it later? Yes, it has, to be, it has to be removed okay. after six months is so the what's longest. what's it made out of? It's probably a silicone lining on the it's outside. Probably like a, it's probably like a saline-filled breast Something that can't be... It's, <laughs> it's very similar to that. Yeah. They they look similar. Um, I might did, repurpose some of my, you know, <laughs> older plants. I'm just <laughs> She's not serious. They did help people lose some weight, but uh, they were only approved for a narrower BMI range, and we just found the results weren't lasting. Insurance didn't cover it, so it was an out-of-pocket cost. It was somewhere in the range of six to $8,000. Mm. And for the amount of weight loss people were seeing, it wasn't that impressive. One thing that has kind of changed the scene a bit is the increasing effectiveness of the weight loss medications that are coming out. It used to be looked a bit of as an either-or but the same way we don't look at cancer as like, oh, you're going to have chemo surgery or chemo. surgery yeah. or radiation. It's like, no, for this disease, you're you're probably going to get all three. So Multimodal approaches. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And the newer medications are a lot of the injectable type medications. They're called GLP-1 uh, agonist medications. Semaglutide. Yes. Terzepatide, you said semaglutides, and liraglutide are the mm. three that I know of. And their effectiveness compares to something like the balloon, and you can take them for the rest of your life. In fact, actually, you have to take them for the rest of your life if you want the results to be durable. But, but they're getting better, so just because I do surgery doesn't mean I don't want patients to have access to these medications because they're looking better and better. Absolutely. The same for me. I want my patients to be healthy, and that does include getting to your ideal weight. So whether it's surgery or medication or just lifestyle change, whatever it takes. I mean, in, in my opinion, you know, certainly if you can do it on your own with lifestyle changes, I personally feel like that's That seems way more sustainable. That's the best. But for those that are struggling or need something more than that, it's good that there are options. So have you ever heard about the set point theory? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big part of what plays into people being able to have long-term 
success. So I would agree. Absolutely. Start with diet and lifestyle changes and see how that works. You're talking about set point weight correct? Yes. Yes. I'll explain. So the idea is that whatever your weight is for a significant amount of time during your adult lifespan, your body is going to feel kind of comfortable there and it's going to be resistant to change. Mm -hmm. So if someone has been overweight, 100 pounds overweight is often a number that is going to kind of get your BMI into bariatric surgery range. Once you've been that weight for years or decades, your body is going to be so resistant to changing that. And cutting out some bad habits is not likely to ever get somebody to get down to an ideal body for any length of time. They might be able to do it over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. If you watch The Biggest Loser, some of these people lose 200 pounds, just, you know, an incredible amount of effort that they're putting into it. But then they followed these people afterwards. There was a big study. A lot of them gained it back. They gained it back. And it was because their metabolism was slowing down so much to try to get their body back to that weight. Mm -hmm. Some people's metabolic rates dropped below a thousand calories. And if you're trying to live on 900 calories a day for the rest Mm -hmm. of your life, that's extremely difficult. Right. That sounds tough. That's not a theory though, right? That's actual... It's hard to kind of demonstrate it in a proven way. I mean, you'd have to be doing probably like brain dissections and things looking at like the (laughs) the thalamus and hypothalamus. There's probably lots of factors that are contributing, right? Oh, yes. The human body... From a cellular perspective, when you think about like all of the microorganisms that are in our GI tract, there's more bacteria mm-hmm. in us from a cell to cell perspective than human cells. So some of it could be even things like that. Like what are the what's the microbiome demanding of you? I mean, there are yes. probably just mm-hmm. so many for sure components that are contributing to things like set point. People like to say stuff like, "Oh, calories in, calories out." It's simple, and it's like, right. "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Your body is not a bomb calorimeter. <laughs> you know, it doesn't just work like that. You could eat calories. And then the question is, does your body have the capacity to digest all of them? There are certain types of things that, you know, like cows eat grass and things like that. And they have to have a special stomach to be able to digest it. If Mm -hmm. you eat it, you're not going to digest it. So the calories in are going to go, you know, right Right. through your GI. Other things are, you know, the types of hormones being secreted. If you have someone who's a type 1 diabetic, Mm -hmm. and they don't take insulin, their blood sugars will be very high. They'll eat the food, their sugars will run high, and it'll go out in their urine, and they can actually intentionally lose weight by not taking their insulin. It's very harmful, obviously not recommended, but it works. So the calories are going in, but they're not gaining weight. So Mm -hmm. your insulin levels, all of your different growth factor levels, your cortisol levels, if somebody's not sleeping, their cortisol levels are going to be higher. If they're stressed at work, their family, their cortisol levels are higher. Their calories in will get stored as fat. Somebody else's calories might come in and they've got high energy. It gives them high energy levels. They're like, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And they burn off the calories. But the person who's not sleeping well, stress and everything else, their cortisol levels are higher. So their calories go in and it goes right to their belly instead. Like you said, it's not a simple in and out. This is kind of like with your Live Better MD. What, you know, you do the full analysis and you check out all the things. What's that? So as part of my practice, I have an anti-aging regenerative medicine component. So thinking about ways to age slower, be healthier from that perspective. And obviously being at your ideal weight is one of those components. So we do see patients that are wanting to lose some weight. And and I have a couple of nurse practitioners that will see those patients primarily because I'm still focused mostly on doing surgery. But looking at the patient from a complete and comprehensive perspective, not just, okay, what are your sex hormone levels? You know, what's your potassium level? It's just our body is a system of systems. So in order to be functional, 
functioning optimally. Looking at the whole body. Yeah, all of those things need to be optimized. So sometimes I think that can be overlooked in traditional medicine where you see your rheumatologist and you're talking about your joints and or you go and see your pulmonologist and you're talking about your breathing and your lungs and really all of those things are very much interrelated. So are there other surgeries beyond the balloon? Oh yes. So the balloon is something that we actually haven't done now in at least a year. Maybe okay, so you don't do probably that since before. I've said you're underwhelmed. Yeah, we're underwhelmed. The medications have basically caught up in effectiveness and is something that somebody can do long term instead of just for six months. But none of the medications have caught up with where our modern operations are. So in the 1960s or so is when they started experimenting with doing surgery for weight loss. Actually, initially, it was an accidental side effect, basically. There's a, the Ruin-Y was originally developed as an operation for reflux. It works really well for reflux. And they were like, oh, wow, look, these people are losing a lot of weight. Maybe wow. we should do this for weight loss. And in the 60s, they started doing that. And then they tried some other operations like the jejunoileal bypass, a.k.a. the Mason bypass for Dr. Mason in Iowa who was kind of a pioneer in bariatric surgery. But what they found was it was extremely malabsorptive. People's bodies were not absorbing calories. They were developing just bizarre vitamin deficiencies. They could develop liver failure, cirrhosis, things like that. So they took a step back and they were like, okay, like these people lose a lot of weight, but at what cost? It's not worth it. They changed it and they made it so people can have surgery. It's much less malabsorptive. Their bodies can handle normal calorie intake but they still lose a, a significant amount of weight. So the the progression, they did something called the VBG in the 1980s, and it, it's a little bit complicated to Vertical explain. band gastrectomy? Yes. Ga- uh, gastroplasty. Gastroplasty. Okay. So they were wrapping a piece of mesh or a silastic ring around the upper part of the stomach. Is that like a fundoplication? No. If you think about just straight down um, about three centimeters mm-hmm. uh, from the gastroesophageal junction, they would wrap a, a band of this mesh so or a ring. Is that a lap band? It was the early lap band. Then it kind of evolved into the lap band because the lap band was able to be placed laparoscopically. They started doing that in the early 2000s. But what they found was it's a foreign body being wrapped around the stomach. It can move. It can slip. And it did erode things? Yes, but rarely. Fortunately, I've only seen a handful of those. It's pretty rare. But it could erode, and then you'd have a hole in your stomach. So what they found was that it... Because it didn't affect any of your gastrointestinal hormone physiology, the results were, again, kind of temporary. The long-term results showed people lost like 15% of their extra weight, which is not that great for undergoing surgery. So what's the ideal percentage? So 100% of your extra weight is ideal. Well, I'm saying, you know, like, what do you, you know, extra weight, but like, what is the ideal percentage of the starting weight that you would lose? Oh, good question. So when you have a child growing up and you're trying to predict, like, what would be a healthy weight for them to be to get their BMI within range. There are a number of calculators. None of them are perfect. None of them are meant for every body type. But generally speaking, there's some ideal body weight calculators. So say for a woman who's 5'4", the ideal body weight is probably anywhere from 110 to 135 pounds or something like that. Mm depending on, you know, muscle and genetics, things like that. So then if somebody's overweight and now they're 100 pounds overweight, at that same height, you'd say, okay, now you're 100 pounds overweight, you're 100 pounds over your ideal body weight, that's your excess weight. Right. So, so that's then like what, 40 to 50% loss. So that would be... So if they were one... If they're supposed to be 135... And you're now they're 235. Now they're... Yes. Now right. they're 235. Right. So now... If I say this operation will help them lose 10% of their extra weight or 50% of their extra weight, it's of that 100 pounds. Okay. 
So if I say surgery will help them lose 50% of their extra weight. That's 50 pounds. Right. So now they'd be 185. Okay. The goal is usually not to get somebody back to an ideal body weight. Mm-hmm. That's just a calculation that helps somebody starting from childhood. Right. Like where Help should you... them get to a manageable level. Right. So somebody who loses 50 pounds is in a much better health situation than someone who didn't. Even if they didn't get back to an ideal body weight, it's still so much better for their health. So the, the band really only helps people long-term lose like 15% of their weight. Okay, so do you do the band currently? I've never done a band. Okay. I have removed lots and lots of bands. I feel like it was popular at some time. Up until about 2010 or 12 is when it really started trailing off, and that kind of coincided with the sleeve gastrectomy coming out, which is now the most popular bariatric procedure being done. Okay, so what is that? So if you take the entire stomach and you think about it being two liters in size, if you fill it up with fluid or air, and then you cut off about 80% of the outer portion of the stomach, and you're left with a piece of stomach that's about the size and shape of a banana, Mm -hmm. it's your esophagus into the stomach, into the small intestine, but without kind of the larger reserve outside of it, that's the sleeve gastrectomy. So do you actually remove the excess? Okay. Yeah. And does it ever grow bigger than the banana size? Not really. Uh, a lot of people think that's a super common question. People are like, oh, I stretched my sleeve out. I stretched my pouch out, whatever. But these are muscles. Your, your stomach is a strong muscle. If I go in there and I'm doing an endoscopy or surgery, I can see the muscle squeezing and moving. Mm-hmm. The same way that somebody who opens their mouth and talks a lot doesn't ha- end up with an actual Huge big mouth. mouth. <laughs> we just say they've got a big mouth. But any body part that was meant for this kind of thing, and the stomach was definitely meant for it, then it stretches and it goes back. So the gastric band, you said about 15% of your excess body weight. What would you usually say for the sleeve? It's about 50 to 60% of somebody's excess weight. Wow. And then just to go down the list so that we can get it all in a nice summation, the ruin why is about how much of your excess body weight on average? Long-term maintenance would be like 60 to 70%. And then the duodenal switch? Is about 70 to 80 percent. Okay. So each one creeps up about 10 percent. Now, are there more options or is that? Those are the main three now. The The sleeve, the um, gastric bypass, and the duodenal switch. Now, the gastric bypass and the duodenal switch can either be done as what's called a loop or a divided one. The loop gastric bypass is often called a mini gastric bypass or one anastomosis gastric bypass. And the duodenal switch, the loop one is called a SADI or a SIPS versus the traditional. The, the differences get a little less relevant. Um, a lot of it comes down to what's approved by insurance. They would approve one specific technique over another? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it takes a long time to get these procedures approved at all. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of a big deal. But where we do see this is people who will go down to Mexico and have bariatric surgery there. They may get a procedure that's I know not... people that have done that. You do? Yeah. Bariatric surgery or plastic surgery? Oh, both. That yeah. freaks me out. Is this a, like a Tijuana thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tijuana has a lot of bariatric surgeons there. And my misgivings about that, and I would tell people, if you live in Indiana, which is where we're located, please don't go to Mexico for bariatric surgery. The surgeons down there are often very capable at doing these operations. There's no issue with them actually doing the operation. There's complications, right? that your far Complications. Away. Follow-up. So any surgeon you ever meet who tells you there are no complications is a liar right. and you should run away. I have complications. Dr. Roby has complications. Everybody has complications. Right. We should always try to keep them to a minimum, of yes. course, but you're going to have them. Yeah, but to say you have none, obviously, is a total falsehood. Right. So. 
Absolutely. And if you're 2,000 miles away from your surgeon and now you have a complication, you have to try to find somebody new and they don't know what was done to you Mm -hmm. and it might have been done in a weird technique Mm -hmm. for this area and it's it's a problem. I understand that people do it because it it costs less, especially Mm -hmm. if they have insurance issues. It'll be cheaper to go down to another country, but it makes your long-term care a lot more complicated. But then the other question is, is it actually cheaper when you take into consideration... They're getting what's, zero what, follow-ups, I'm assuming, unless you're traveling back to Mexico. So that's obviously a cost. Well, and what is the typical cost range? And any complications, you're going elsewhere and having that paid for as well. The numbers I've heard for having bariatric surgery down in Tijuana, for example, mm-hmm. are often in the five to $8,000 range. Wow. There are a handful of programs in the U.S., that will do like a sleeve for less than about $10,000, I've heard. I'm not familiar with any of them too closely. Typically, the prices are going to be at least in the high teens to low to mid $20,000 uh, to have bariatric surgery. Uh, well, you're saying if US. someone wants to, were to pay cash? Right, right. And if, if they don't have insurance. Right. They, yeah, cash. Okay. Well, they often do have insurance, but well, their insurance policy doesn't insurance cover, won't cover it. it. Insurance so won't cover it. We usually see that in people who have uh, a smaller employer. Mm-hmm. that shows a policy that doesn't cover bariatric surgery because it, it saves money. Right. Um, but I have definitely seen state and city policies that don't cover it. But in Indiana, at least, I think the state policy does, and I'm pretty sure all the cities generally do as well. But if somebody's got their own business, they may have chosen a policy that doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. So if you're a patient and you're like, hey, I think that I need to seek a bariatric s- surgery, what is the first step? Do they go straight to you or do they need to go to their primary doctor? How do you even get there? Either one of those is an option. Uh, a lot of people will do either one. I see, I see those both. Uh, a lot of times their primary care will have brought up their weight on multiple occasions. And the person will often get frustrated by their lack of weight loss because of the whole set point that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. And so they'll um, say like, okay, what can I do now? And then, well, have you considered right. surgery? But nobody rushes into surgery. A lot of times, you know, their primary care will say something. The person will think about it. It's kind of planting a seed and, you know, start to think about it. And over time, then they may come see us. Or very commonly, people will see us because somebody, one of their friends or family or coworker Has had surgery. Had it. Yep. So my aunt had bariatric surgery. I mean, and this is many years ago. She may have even had a lap band, actually. But she, or maybe not, because her, I know her stomach was reduced to, they said, the size of a thumb. That one sounds kind of like a gastric bypass, actually. Okay. I mean, she lost a significant amount of weight. It was a huge thing for her. And then now, probably where Dr. Roby comes in, (laughs) she had some contouring done. And now she has no belly button. So we were talking about doing paramedical tattoo and actually tattooing on a belly button for her. I can also create a belly button for her. Well, you know, I don't know what her economic situation was. She chose that. But why would somebody choose to not get a belly button? I never asked. So from a contouring perspective? Yeah, I guess she had the excess skin taken off. So it may just be, so a paniculectomy is a, uh, Dr. Crawford is showing me the money sign. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the money, the belly button. Well, so a paniculectomy is a procedure where you're removing the overhanging, what's called a panis. So the tissue that folds over the other tissue. Right, after Um, significant weight loss, a lot of people have that. Sometimes that can be covered by insurance companies. Mm -hmm. Now, classically, they make you jump through hoops. Like, okay, you have to have lost at least 100 pounds, and you have to have shown a history of recurrent paniculitis or infections, requiring antibiotics, or maybe even hospitalization. So a lot of 
criteria to maybe get covered. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a lot of, like of recent, I haven't had a lot of good luck with paniculectomy coverage. But what that doesn't do would be all the rest of the parts associated the with an abdominoplasty. So an mm-hmm. abdominoplasty, in addition to removing the hanging skin at the bottom, also addresses the skin above the belly button. Mm-hmm. And it does a transposition, so it moves all this extra skin above the belly button, pulls it down, makes a new opening for the belly button, and it placates the rectus abdominis muscles. So a paniculectomy would not do those things. So it may just be that... They took the extra skin off but didn't do the belly button. Did they just, like, let's just take this off too? Because she... I, I don't, I don't want to speculate on what your That's, that's, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Sometimes if your belly button stock, your umbilical stock is so long that the surgeons thought that, hey, this thing isn't going to survive even if I try to transpose it, maybe they just took it off. Interesting. So uh, that's rare, I would think it would mean it was too short. Yeah, imagine like a, a string where one end is tied to your abdominal muscles and the other one is the external belly button that you see. Mm-hmm. As that string is longer and longer and longer, the likelihood oh, of that too skin thin. surviving... It's too thin, I guess... Because it's so a big stretched out, gotcha. and the ability of the blood supply to get all the way to the end of that string would be potentially okay. compromised. So. so maybe we should go into what you do after bariatric surgery. You do the plastic surgery, right? I do the the post bariatric body contouring, and pretty much whatever issue Dr. Crawford has left his patients with or they're so contouring. <laughs> I would think a significant weight loss the, is the a issue good is, issue. The, the issue is good health. The good issue. health. No, they're excited. Significant no, weight loss. I'm just teasing. No, they're excited. They're happy. They are feeling better. They have more energy and they want the outside of their body to reflect that. Right. And so that's where my role comes in is just removing those areas of excess skin, maybe doing some muscle placations in case of the abdomen and contouring the body so that it looks, you don't have bat wings and you don't have your thigh skin hanging on top of itself. So who's going to have extra skin? Can you predict this? I think you can tell to some extent pre-op. So if you are starting off with skin that is already droopy, Let's say you have a thick arm with a lot of adipose tissue and the skin looks fairly well shrink-wrapped down to that core, then that patient certainly has a better chance of having less laxity postoperatively than someone that starts off when you're already looking at their arm and it has tons of fat and the skin is sagging. You just know in that scenario, okay, that sagging is just only going to be made worse by further weight loss. And I think that's okay. I mean, certainly... The downsides of having more loose skin are way worth it to be healthier and have a longer um, life with less complication. And we can remove skin. But, but yeah, it's, sometimes it's hard to know. But in general, and I tell this to liposuction patients too, if you're coming in and you're like, I would like to have liposuction on this area, and you're already starting off with some hints of loose skin, then just removing the fat, whether it's liposuction or some other way. It's not going to change your skin laxity. Yeah. What about morphiosate to tighten some things up? So there are some minimally invasive ways to address skin laxity, but if you have, if you've got so much skin that it's flopping in the breeze, then yeah, that's not going to cut it. So it really depends on where you're starting from. But classically, patients that have lost about 100 pounds of weight, they're going to need excisional procedures. They're mm-hmm. probably not as good of candidates for the minimally invasive stuff. I mean, not across the board, but as a rule right. of thumb. Right. You're going to need to probably, actually go in and have some it. stuff removed. Yeah, I think so. So wait, back to bariatric surgery. What is the recovery like after that? Are you going to be back at work in a few days? or? Not usually within a few days, but it's not so much the actual 
surgical recovery. So I'll just briefly touch on the other two procedures we mentioned just because they're a lot harder to talk about without a diagram, but there's the gastric bypass or the Ruin Y and the duodenal switch, which is basically a gastric sleeve with an intestinal bypass. So to do any of these procedures, for the most part, involves about the same number of incisions, somewhere between four and six incisions, depending on the approach. How big done. are the incisions? Uh, so most of them are five millimeters. Okay, so, so they're... that's like a quarter inch or so. And then Tiny. the biggest incision that I'm going to do is usually about a 15 millimeter incision. So this is um, endoscopy? Laparoscopy. Laparoscopy. So, so all minimally invasive. Yes. Okay. I, so you're it, not going to have a big cut across your body no. with bariatric surgery? No, it's been a long time since that was a common thing. I've not seen that for somebody having a, a regular bariatric procedure, meaning they haven't previously had a ton of work done in like 10 years. So it's not 100%, but it's got to be like 99.9% at this point. And honestly, doing it with a big incision doesn't necessarily make it any easier at all for us. Uh, reaching up to the upper stomach near the diaphragm and everything else, it's just easier to do it and see it uh, laparoscopically. So a couple incisions, you know, four to six that are about a quarter of an inch to half an inch long. And people say, oh, which one's more invasive? Well, you're to do these operations, you need the same incisions to do just about any of them. So mm -hmm. they're actually all about equally invasive. It's just, what are we doing on the inside? You know, the sleeve removes a piece of the stomach, and the duodenal switch includes a sleeve as well. So you'd take a piece of the stomach out for that. Where are you taking the piece that you take out? of out of these tiny incisions the 15 millimeter incision you can stretch the okay. stomach it, it's like, um, like wow think about like a, a sock or something like okay. that you know like it, it kind of collapses yes yeah you pull it out and it's just kind of stretchy and fits through uh, the abdominal wall we have to stretch it a little bit and patients will usually say like oh i think this incision is the one that's more sore and it's like yep that's the one where we pulled the piece yeah, of your stomach like out the octopus getting through a quarter yeah. side of yes <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, the stomach's empty when we're taking it out. So the stomach can, you know, if you've... It got, better be, right? Yes, please. <laughs> um, there's been a few people who have... Uh, they've lied about they've, whether or not Well, they... they went to, like, the drive-thru the night before. You're not supposed to eat after midnight. Mm -hmm. But right. people have gone in and eaten. That sounds it's, very dangerous. It is absolutely dangerous. It is very dangerous. So they ate at 11.59 or something? And something some, like that. Some really, some food there's that didn't like break down? There's, like, still McMuffin in your stomach? <laughs> Gross. I have not had anybody do that to my knowledge, and certainly no stomachs that looked like they did. But I mean, what happens to the contents? Oh, gosh. Well, there's a risk of them spilling out. and You want your stomach to be empty because we, we're going to be doing all sorts of work on it. It also sends the wrong message. If somebody's, you know, binge eating at midnight before bariatric surgery, <laughs> maybe maybe their head's not quite in the right space to be right. proceeding with this operation. So mm. uh, everybody has to have a psychological evaluation before you have bariatric surgery to make sure, sure that you're in a good spot. And uh, you got to get your mind right. Oh, yeah. How know? helpful do you feel like those psychological evaluations are? How many patients have you turned away? Let me ask you that. Do you know? You know, I don't know the percentage. Our goal is not to prevent most people from having surgery. We're not like, you know, weeding out the crazies sure. or something like that. But going through bariatric surgery is a major change mm -hmm. in a lot of people's life. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's right up there with having a child, buying a house, you know. It's a big thing. Big, big new career change, things like that. So we deal with lots of people who have, you know, some maybe mild mental illness, some depression, some anxiety, very common things. And none of those things would ever automatically disqualify somebody from surgery. But if you are coming out of a major depressive episode, you know, some, maybe something terrible happened in oh, your sure. life. You know, your your mom just died and you're not dealing with time. that. Maybe now is not a good time to Emotional. be proceeding with surgery where you're going to be 
going through another big life change. So in a person like that, the psychologist is going to say, hey, I'd like you to do some counseling, three to six months of meeting with a therapist, working with them. And as long as they feel you're now in a comfortable spot, you've got good coping mechanisms, then go ahead and move ahead with surgery. Actually, you and I had a mutual patient. She'd had a bariatric surgery, and she was telling me, she came for me for contouring how she had, she was really tired because she just was up late night the night before at Steak and Shake. I'm like, oh, what were you doing there? Well, I woke up at 2 a.m., and I decided I was hungry. So we all woke up, and we went to Steak and Shake and had milkshakes and fries and, you know, like, Steak burger, whatever you have there. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, you can't do that. Yeah. But I wonder if your psychological screening is picking up on that kind of stuff. Probably no. We only know what people will tell us. And, well, and how many um, drinks did she have? Because Steak and Shake is where I would go after I've been drinking all night. No, it was like a normal night. Just like a like, Thursday? I Just mean, like, yeah. hey, let's yeah. Tuesday? I wasn't seeing her on Saturday. <laughs> okay. Anyways, this goes back to the lifestyle thing. Some of these things are habits that are probably hard to break and that's how you could potentially end back end up back where you were to some extent to some small extent so how far after bariatric surgery do you go in for contouring obviously you need to lose like about a year okay that's what's recommended so you and also you want to get your mind right and you, you want to be make sure you're at a stable, stable weight right yeah it's classically like a year after your surgery most people's weight will stabilize after a sleeve about nine to twelve months after surgery, the gastric bypass or the duodenal switch, it might be a little more like 12 to 18 months. Everybody has a one-year follow-up visit. There's other mm-hmm. visits, but I'll see people at their one-year follow-up visits. Just to see how they're doing. And-, and and we'll talk about, that's often when I'll bring up the possibility of seeing a plastic surgeon if it looks like somebody who would benefit from it or if they have questions. But mm-hmm. some of these people have a lot of chafing and irritation from skin rubbing, and they I, and I can see it when I examine their arms and their belly, and you can see, like, is this something you want to get looked at? I had a post-bariatric patient that came in a couple weeks ago requesting thigh gap. Oh. I'm like, wow. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Dr. Crawford. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. I'm just trying this to, is where I was the trying to think of a, come in. This is a very tall order. <laughs> I was trying to think of what you would call that procedure. Well, it's like a medial thigh lift, but like some aggressive one where I'm creating like some kind of gouged I mean, out. Let's just say, let's just go for like remove excess skin, but thigh I mean, we gap. Have to, be, to have a thigh gap, your legs are very thin. I, I feel like thigh gap's not in anymore. It's all about the butt. Like you want I mean, whatever. I, I can just tell you what people still want. Okay, so, Dr. Ruby, then, would you do, would someone come in after bariatric surgery and say, okay, now I'm close to my ideal weight. I want a BBL. Would that be something that you would do? Or you'd say, sure. You know, if if it's something, if they're an ideal candidate. They're a good candidate. Sure. Usually that's not on the top of their list, but I feel like after a lot of weight loss, they kind of get this pancake scooped out. Right, from the extra skin. Look. But if you're well, already so going to be that, removing that, that extra. That comes a bit more from the muscle loss. So okay. people, people... The pancake look? Uh, yeah, what she's referring okay. to. So when someone loses a lot of weight, they're going to lose muscle with it. Right. There's no way that you can selectively only lose fat. Whether we're talking bodybuilders or somebody having bariatric surgery, you can't selectively target. Your body takes what it needs. It takes what it wants. Right. <laughs> and so someone is going to lose muscle mass. I can often see it around the shoulders, the collarbones. Someone will come in and you can definitely see they've had 
fat and muscle loss. And your butt, your gluteus maximus, is one of the biggest muscles in your body. So mm-hmm. you're absolutely going to lose muscle volume there. But unlike some of these other body parts we're talking about, you can regain muscle there. So somebody could do, you know, squats and leg lunges. You actually and have to work like out, that. though. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but usually it's not, even if you can compensate with muscular hypertrophy that's intentional, usually there's so much skin laxity right. that you're still not going to overcome that kind of droopy scoop down. Oh, right. Abs- no, I, yeah, I agree. I, mean, you, I agree. You, you, um, but if you want a smaller waist. I don't tell people, just go do more squats, please. But right. if you do have bigger butt muscles, it, it does help a little. So, uh, yeah, if you had big muscles and a lot of fat there, and then you lose all the fat, you're still going to have extra skin, even if you manage to keep the big right. muscles. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And so would you do that all in one surgery or would you do several surgeries? Oh, well. Say if you needed arms and legs. There's only so much you're going oh, yeah. so to do at a time. So to. what would you do? I mean, what's what's a typical? Usually I start with what they're most bothered by. So say they so lost 100 So average person pounds. is their abdomen, but not okay. across the board. Some people will say their arms or their legs or, whatever, or even their neck and face. Depends. So whatever they're most bothered by, usually, or their breasts, we'll prioritize that. And then maybe one other thing if we can fit it in. And mm-hmm. Just kind of and then maybe you list. do another round. Yeah. Some people will do multiple surgeries, but that's a lot of time and effort and, and, and money. And so, obviously there's, you know, healing time. Oh, yeah. You have to wait at least three months from an uncomplicated contouring surgery before you're contemplating the next one. And, and if there's so, a small hiccup, then waiting longer. When you say contouring traditionally, I would think about liposuction, but you're talking mostly about skin removal. Well, they usually go hand in hand. Most of the contouring I do has some skin removal or skin tightening if it's minimally invasive and and fat contouring. So sometimes we're removing fat from areas, but sometimes we're adding fat, especially the the butt and the face and the breasts. Even women tend to be areas where they're volume deficient. Okay, Dr. Crawford, I have have a question for you. So I see this a lot. I will see people that have laparoscopic incisions, and then I'll see an incision that's like one centimeter away from another incision. What is that about? She's, she doesn't like the aesthetics, and so, she also likes symmetry. Well, I, I get the asymmetry, but, I mean, when you have a poke and then one center away another poke, I'm like, come on. You, you could have used the first one, yeah? So some of the... <laughs> or one in the middle. I just want... No. So I'm never going to put my incisions right next to each other unless... There was like some additional scar tissue and we now have to reposition or do a different incision for some reason. No, I mean, it's like someone had a surgery and then like someone later or the same person later came back and then put, it's not like at the same time. I'm not saying these are your patients, but but other general surgery patients, okay? You don't need another (laughs) incision one centimeter away from another incision unless I'm missing something here. So I will try to use the same incisions if they're anywhere near that close. Oh, goodness. Uh, (laughs) But what I will say is, you know, in the OR, if you're placing additional trocars, like when you're doing laparoscopy, you turn the lights way down low. Mm-hmm. We have these special green lights that help oh. give us some lighting. But if an OR doesn't have those, then you have almost no light in the room. And if somebody's, you don't need to see mm. the skin to place a trocar. So okay. they might be doing it somewhat blindly. Interesting. Uh, that might be it. Who would have um, thought? And then depending on how people scar, some people's scars are very faint. So sure. in that kind of lighting, I might not be able to see it. Um, oh, I'm seeing them. Or people that have three C-section scars and they're all like one centimeter apart. <laughs> I did a tummy tuck on someone, and then they later had a pregnancy, and then they had a C-section scar that was one centimeter below my tummy tuck scar, and I was like, semi-livid in my mind. It's like, what? Why did you do this? Can you remove the scars? Sure. Yeah, of course. It's not like it's the end of the world, but like, why? The or question like is why. minimally invasive, though. How would you? No, you got to cut it out. You got to cut it out. Okay. You got to consolidate that. It doesn't make sense. Like, chop, chop. Yeah, you got like a scar, and then like just... That's why this is nipped and talks. This is the nip part. <laughs> 
Yeah, you got to nip that extra nip scar out. Nip that in the bud. But anyways, so as a public service announcement, if any surgeons to all the other please surgeons. consolidate your scars. Turn your lights on. Much appreciated for all plastic surgeons and the patients who don't want an additional scar. I'm fascinated that this is all, for the most part, laparoscopic. That's just wild to me. It's like cool. you're looking through a video. It's so cool. It's one of, it's one of the main I reasons mean, why I kind of picked this field at, at the outset. It's kind of like um, a video game. <laughs> so that's true. And they've studied it. And um, Are you good they, at video games? Were you always good at video games? I am. What's your best video game that you are? Um, and do you still play video games? I do. Not not nearly as much. Because you have two kids. Yes. So they probably yeah, like games. I have games. two boys. Oh, they play plenty of video games. So what they found was that any any video game where you're kind of navigating a 3D environment is where you're going to see some of the benefit when it comes to laparoscopy. So like, so you're I, like, boys, let's I used, play. I used to play Call of Duty. You back, all need to be doctors. Like, well, let's see. Oh, I played I played Call of Duty in med school and then a, an early residency. And then my second child was born and the video games kind of went away for uh, the rest of residency. But it helps you navigate a 3D environment. And if you, they, they did some studies showing that people who had some video game experience would perform better on laparoscopic testing. Went at one of my previous jobs. So we, you were dominating. This should actually be a training thing for surgeons. I, I would work with these um, surgical tech students. And I, the, one of my first questions would be, if they were helping me with anything laparoscopic is, do you play video games? And if they said yes, you could always tell like they were significantly better at controlling the laparoscope, Listen understanding the perspective. I've been telling my boys they're not allowed to play video games. <laughs> and now it's like, maybe I should words. let them. So Everything in moderation. Yes. Of course. I mean, they're not allowed to play at all. They're just... They like to go to cookie cutters to get their hair cut because then they can play video <laughs> games. So, But that's also like... For me, so that they'll actually sit there. How old are so, they? Two, six, and eight. So, yeah, gotcha. they're still pretty young. How old are your boys? Ten and twelve. Okay, so they're prime video game age. <laughs> oh, they're, they're pretty good. Okay, so what about some of the potential long-term side effects of bariatric surgeries? So, like I mentioned earlier, the operations now were kind of intended to minimize those sort of things. But it all depends on how the patient kind of handles a lot of their long-term follow-up. So, because they're malabsorptive, there's the chance of developing vitamin deficiencies. The vitamin deficiencies that we see... Malabsorptive because the stomach is much smaller? That's part of it. And then we're also skipping some of the intestine that the food is going through. Oh, okay. So, and then also you're removing part of the stomach that's responsible for B12. Yes. So right? it's intrinsic factor. Well, intrinsic factor is produced in the gastric fundus, and that helps with the B12 absorption. So B12 is a vitamin. It's a water-soluble vitamin. You can give people really high doses of it, and it doesn't matter if their levels go high. If it's extra, they'll just, you know, urinate it out and there's really no downside um, to being a little bit high on your B12. So people can be low on it. You just give them lots of B12. And so do you have fine. them usually do it oral or I am injection? Either sure. one. It depends. If you do a, a subcutaneous injection, insurance will contribute towards that, whereas the sublingual, it, it's an out-of-pocket. Sure. It's just like buying a vitamin. So <laughs> other things, you know, people can end up being vitamin D deficient, but we're in Indiana. The vitamin D. I am vitamin D deficient. There's a lot of debate on whether or not you need to have levels up to a certain level and so on. I, I, don't, I don't honestly know a lot of the literature to that, but we... Seems like it's helpful because I think vitamin D is thought to act almost like its own little hormone. But isn't it also beneficial for bones and... Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No. yeah so we, we check it, your... we replace it 
I'm just saying there's some back and forth on the, the scientific literature, but we check it, we replace it. We encourage our patients to be on vitamin D supplements. And it also is immune system. Uh, I mean, all of these things tend to be right. cofactors for and some mm-hmm. spot on the cascade yeah. for your immune Multiple system, yes. So you're saying for someone who can't absorb it through their stomach, you'll do injectable vitamins? So the B12, only in, right? B, only B12. Just the B12. That's the okay. only injectable Not the other we use. Ones. Almost everything else is an oral. Occasionally someone will get iron deficient enough that they might need an infusion, some IV. But again, that, that happens to that's people. It's anemia, correct? Yeah, that, that's one of the side effects of iron deficiency. Right. Isn't. But I, I've seen peop, lots of people who have never had bariatric surgery who need to get iron infusions as well. So is all of these things caused by their bariatric surgery? Not usually. So other long-term things is most of the issues can be avoided by maintaining regular follow-up. If you disappear off the map, eat poorly, don't take your vitamins, you can get mm-hmm. malnourished, you can get vitamin deficiency. If someone is smoking after bariatric surgery, they're at very high risk for developing ulcers. These ulcers can bleed, rupture. This is a life-threatening emergency. Smoking is terrible anyways. Smoking is terrible anyways. Yeah, smoking is very bad. I don't yeah. operate on smokers. Do you? Do you operate on smokers? No, for bariatric surgery? No. Full yeah. stop. No. Um, and they, it's the reason is... So nicotine, particularly from cigarettes, but in any form it, it's not good, but particularly from cigarettes leads to ulcer formation in the stomach. This can happen whether or not you've had bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. But if you've had bariatric surgery, the stomach to intestinal connection is very sensitive. Oh, okay. Um, to, and it's healing too. So Right. So in the short term, right around having bariatric surgery, you're at risk for a leak if you smoke. And then in the long term, it's usually the ulcers causing uh, a problem or reflux. Smoking causes so does reflux. This, is and a leak's this... a big thing. Like you're going to be in the hospital Oh, it's huge. It's huge. For, with like for you're probably going to be in the ICU. Yeah. They're very not, rare. It's not casual. They're very rare. It's yeah. like 0.3 to 0.5% for most of these procedures. Yeah, but, the, but if saying. you're smoking, then it goes way up. Yeah. So now when you say smoking, are you just talking about regular cigarettes? Or are you talking about people vaping? The whole shebang. All of it. Smoking, Any nicotine. Smoking cigarettes is probably the worst, but we do nicotine testing on everybody undergoing bariatric surgery, and it'll pick it up in any form. It can even pick up a lot of secondhand smoke, and if somebody looks like maybe they sniffed a cigarette in a restaurant once, that's not going to cancel them. But any kind of level of being a positive nicotine test is going to get your surgery at a minimum delayed or canceled. Now, this is why I'm here because I ask these questions. Now, what about smoking weed? So it's not likely to cause ulcer and it's not legal in our state at this point. The main issue that we've encountered with people smoking marijuana is the nausea that it can cause. A lot of people say like, oh, it treats my nausea, but it can actually cause nausea. There's something called cannabinoid-induced hyperemesis syndrome where you're just like relentlessly vomiting. But anytime somebody has nausea and vomiting after bariatric surgery, they get sent to their bariatric surgeon. But the the devil's lettuce um, can cause all kinds of issues with uh, <laughs> nausea. And so I would generally tell somebody like, you probably want to minimize your intake of that. And especially if you're dealing with nausea, then you should cut it out completely. Well, when you're dealing, that's oh. always bad. Most people I know yeah. are yeah. eating yeah. edibles. They're not actually smoking it. But I'm sure you get the same side effects. It's the THC right. that can cause the hyperemesis syndrome. So if somebody is, you know, many years out from bariatric surgery and ingesting some, some legal <laughs> supplies and they're not having symptoms, then no, I would not have a problem with that. Okay. Can you drink? Alcohol. So a little bit is probably fine. Like a drink? Just um, like one drink? You know, birthdays, weddings, holidays, things like that is usually fine. But one of the issues is that people become what, you know, what we call a cheap date, where the alcohol hits your system a lot faster. You have a smaller stomach volume. So mm-hmm. if somebody has, you know, four Quickly. pieces of pizza and a beer, the, the pizza is going to absorb it, delay gastric transit and everything else. So it's going to be absorbed more slowly. 
versus, you know, you have a drink on an empty stomach, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that hit kind of quick. So drinking after bariatric surgery is kind of like always drinking on an empty stomach and hits hits real fast. And so the exaggerated peaks of the alcohol hitting and then the the valleys where the alcohol is now gone from your system Mm -hmm. can kind of crank up the whole addiction response. Mm -hmm. So that's one factor. It it hits your bloodstream faster so somebody could become legally drunk faster because your blood alcohol concentration depends on how quickly you drink and how much you drink. Right. So this is like drinking. how much you weigh too. Yes. And gender and, you know, body composition. So (laughs) this is like drinking real fast. On an empty stomach, and it's like doing a bong. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't done a <laughs> bong in a long time. Uh, I told you I'm straight laced. I don't think I've ever done a bong. So same, or, or same. Like the, the I think we should yeah. um, totally done a bong. And yeah, then, yeah. but uh, what are we talking about? I'm just kidding. Bongs of alcohol. <laughs> alcohol bongs. Dr. Crawford's like, none of those bongs. But then the, uh, oh, the other factor is what's called a transfer addiction. So some people are obese just because life happened and like they used to be athletic and then they got an injury and they ate the same way that, you know, a couple um, of children, you, things you like know, that. Going through the drive through window, you're living, taking your kids all around to sports. I can identify with that. Sure. And that's most people. But some people are actually addicted to food. They have a food addiction. When you take that away from them, they'll need to turn to something else. So they transfer their addiction. Yes. That can become shopping, gambling. It could become alcohol, drugs, you know, any number of things. So somebody can develop a transfer addiction to alcohol and become an alcoholic. People, it's rare. People yeah. have counseling after for their body changes. Is that normal? It's not built into the program, but if anybody ever asked me, I'd certainly encourage them. When you eat, you get a dopamine release. Yes. So there is that. For sure. I can totally identify with that. It makes me happy. (laughs) There was a study that looked at people that were applying for parole. Mm -hmm. And I guess your likelihood... I have no idea where this is going. (laughs) This is is why this is so fun. So your likelihood of getting your parole accepted was better after lunch if the judge had eaten. Oh, I have heard this. I would want to win. It's all about whether or not he's got food and he has that dopamine release and he's happier. So get yourself a lawyer that gets you an after lunch appointment. first, but also think about this as if you're needing someone to do a favor. That's why I was like, hey, Dr. Crawford, we do this podcast. I'm going to ask him after lunch. Now I'm going to look and see when you texted me. (laughs) (laughs) She's really smart. One thirty p.m. You're like, oh, that sounds great. Is that what it was? I don't know. I don't, I, just, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, after you, like, give him some chocolates. Uh-huh. You're like, okay. Yeah. He's I'm like, like oh, I'll he's, be back. He's happy and he's full. We'll definitely do it now. <laughs> okay, so, Dr. Crawford, how many celebrities do you think are getting this? <laughs> now, let's talk about, for example, like, Kelly Osbourne. She's probably not in the 35 to 40. Did she say she Overweight. Had of course not. But she's had significant weight loss. So the celebrities that I know about, I believe Mariah Carey did. She did. What, that's what I I thought I heard that. Oh, I love this. Al Roker, quasi. Well, he, he did. He yes, said he, did. he told everybody. Chris Christie did. He's um, still big. Well, he had a he had a gastric band, which is less effective. Just so he needs to go back he, to the drawing board. Uh, uh, Chris Christie, call Dr. Chris Crawford. Yes, get exactly. to Do you think that there are, in your professional opinion, celebrities probably getting this who don't qualify for the BMI range? Well, so the BMI range is. Um, insurance. It's an insurance factor. Well, they so, don't care about that. Well, that's they're why they, that's why they're right. getting it. Doctors say, yes, I will do this for, if yes, you're at a yes. range below 35. Yes, probably. Because what we know is that different ethnicities are actually affected differently by BMI. So South Asian, like the Indian population, they are more dramatically affected by type 2 diabetes at a lower okay. BMI. So you're saying that outcome is not equitable? That's, that's a real problem. That was a qu- I have to think about what you're asking me. <laughs> I'm just... 
in other countries, they have different BMI thresholds because they found it's beneficial for patients at different BMI ranges. So if somebody came to me with a BMI of, you know, 34 and hypertension and knee pain and their orthopedic surgeon said, you need a knee replacement, but I want you to lose weight. And they're Mm -hmm. like, I can't lose weight. Their insurance would not cover bariatric surgery, but if they were willing to pay for this out of pocket, I would say, you sound like somebody who would benefit from this. And I would absolutely consider surgery for somebody like that. What's the lowest BMI you've done? At the time of surgery, it was 34, but both of them, there's two people who had a BMI of 34 at the time of surgery. Both of them had had a higher BMI. One of them was much higher when I had initially seen them. And they'd lost Um, weight. They had lost weight. Mm. One of them was a self-pay out-of-pocket, and the other one, when I had initially seen him, his BMI had been in the mid to high 40s. He'd lost like 60-plus pounds at least. But we know that that weight loss is not likely to stick without bariatric surgery. So I told him, I still think this is in your best interest long-term. And he's gone on to lose 100% of his excess weight. He's down to his ideal body weight. That's amazing. Has he seen you yet? So, I don't know. Let's not talk about names. (laughs) (laughs) can't say names no names here well this has been so fascinating so i feel like i see this a lot and it's not from your patients specifically dr crawford but i will see a fair amount of patients that have usually it's an umbilical hernia but sometimes it's a ventral hernia in the face of substantial rectus diastasis so listeners what that means is you have a little herniation of your intra-abdominal contents but it is coming in between a separation of your six-pack muscles, your rectus abdominis muscles, which are supposed to be midline. So really, in my opinion, that needs to be repaired as well. When that's not repaired, the recurrence is higher. Are you talking about in the surgery, about, the contouring surgery? Or are you well, talking about in just the, in general, in general actually. I'm talking about repairing hernias. But you wouldn't general. do that during the bariatric surgery, would you? No, you no, might, that, right? That, uh, if you see a hernia, won't you fix it? Yes, if it's narrow enough yeah. that I feel like a piece of intestine could get trapped in it. You have to see it, of course. You're not like going looking for it. No, I mean, you can quickly scan the entire okay. abdominal wall when you're okay. doing laparoscopy. And if it's large enough that I think a piece of intestine can get stuck in it, but kind of usually in that two to three centimeter range is kind of the worry, mm-hmm. like something could get stuck in there and get blocked. If it's, you know, 10 centimeters across, nothing's going to get incarcerated in there, sure. and their risk of recurrence is so high if you repair it while they're still really Big. overweight. It's like trying to zip up your jacket, and when you're wearing a jacket that's too small mm-hmm. for what your weight is, even if you've got the zipper shut, you bend over, so it's going to tear right. open. Right, right, right. One thing you do not want for a hernia is to repair it multiple times. You want to fix a hernia one time. So the diastasis, I think one of the main issues is just the, the insurance coverage. So for a number of reasons, not covered. it's not covered. And so if somebody has had multiple pregnancies or was overweight, I would not fix it while they're still overweight. But if they've lost weight, I would recommend getting a large diastasis fixed. What you want to do is if the six pack is, you know, like eight inches apart, you want to bring it back to the mm-hmm. midline because that restores normal abdominal wall physiology when somebody's sitting up, coughing, just normal bodily functions are all aided by having your six-pack. But insurance often doesn't cover it because they consider it to be a cosmetic procedure. So is your risk of getting a hernia recurrence higher if you've got a diastasis? Oh, I bet. I mean, that fascia in the midline is attenuated, thinned out, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be as strong. It's not going to be as good. good. But if somebody you know, has a you know, let's say post-pregnancy umbilical hernia and some diastasis and the hernia is bothering them and it's, you know, they don't, they're they not 
concerned about the diastasis or they don't have the money to pay for the non-insured procedure, sure. I would consider, yes, I'd definitely fix hernias in those people. Yeah. Well, I saw a lady, um, I don't know, he's about a month ago, who had a six centimeter open umbilical hernia repair incision, midline vertical. So pretty big scar, really. And she came in for tummy tuck after the fact. I did do her tummy tuck, and the scar was so big I wasn't able to remove it all. And her hernia was still there. I thought when people repair that hernia, that's usually laparoscopic. Not always. But people do big... Oftentimes, there's a lot that goes into that. That's a whole other conversation. Um, If I can do a small hernia laparoscopically, absolutely preferred approach. But if they've got a big diastasis and you need to do other things like that, then more commonly open. There's a, the, the robot, the surgery robot, I use it for some hernia repairs, has enabled things to be done minimally invasively that used to be done with a big open incision. But Are so. you doing any of your bariatric surgeries with the robot? I don't. One of the main reasons is it limits how much help your assistant can give you. Mm. So I've got incredible assistants helping me. They've done thousands and thousands of bariatric procedures and they can use both hands. With the robot, you can only control two arms at one time. You can tap in and bring the third arm in, position it, and then tap back to your original arm. But you can't have four arms moving at all times. How big is this robot? And is it outside or inside of the body? Oh, it's outside. But it would fill up most of this 8 by 10 room. It would fill up a good chunk of this room. So the person, like, goes under the robot and you operate it like a video game? Yes. It's pretty similar to that, yes. It's pretty wild. People don't know this. People don't know this. You look it up on YouTube. There's a lot of videos of this stuff. All right. Well, I think we've touched on all the things. This has been so fun. Yes. And now, next time you're on, I need to know more celebrities that have had bariatric surgery. It's Um, all like speculation, though. Well, maybe we need an inside source also. There's something, like, a little bit crass about trying to guess who's had what. Yeah, bit. but it's fun. Okay, maybe. It's fun people listen to this. Okay, so if anyone has any questions about bariatric surgery, reach out to Dr. Chris Crawford. He's at St. Vincent Carmel. Thank or you, Dr. Crawford. if you have questions about post-bariatric contouring, certainly reach out to me, Dr. Ashton, Yes, and if you need your uh, belly button tattooed, reach out yeah, to me. Yeah, if you lost your belly button and you need one. <laughs> if you want a real one, I will do it. If you just want a tattoo one, Katie is I your I can gal. take care of that, too. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.